All right, good morning. I'd encourage uh, everyone to get a Bible out. Revelation chapter 6 is going to be where uh, we'll read today. We're also going to get into chapter 7. It's going to be important to kind of read along, follow along as uh, as best as you can. Um, uh, when we, you know, when you say, hey, we're going to read Revelation, every, everybody gets a little nervous sometimes. And part of the reason why you get nervous is for just such passages that uh, are before us uh, this morning. Uh, when we think about Revelation and you hear the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, this really gets us excited, you know. And, and if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, we really, this is all we ever talk about is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, we just can't get enough of it, right? Um, hopefully guests can pick up on sarcasm. Now, we are uh, studying through this book because Revelation has a way of waking us up uh, in, in, a mag- in these incredible images that sort of uh, jar us into thinking about our life and our everyday walk. Um, I don't know what kind of nap taker you are, um, but there's varying levels of nap taking. You know, there's the just sitting down for a moment doing the head bob, and it's like, okay, you just need to close your eyes for five minutes. There's that nap. Then there's the sort of 15-minute nap where you might kick your shoes off, you know, and really settle in for a moment. You know you're really serious about your nap taking if the belt comes off, uh, and then next thing you know, there's covers and blankies involved. Um, I'm pleased to see that no one has a blanket here today for the sermon. I appreciate that. Um, watch it all come next week, honey. But uh, the uh, uh, but when I think about my faith, there's sometimes where I'm uh, I'm in that sort of deep snooze. Uh, in fact, it's like the the extreme version of uh, my nap taking, which is like you know down all the way to your skibbies under the covers and say I'm shutting down for the for a long while. And every once in a while you need that sort of nap. If you do that nap, you're like, you mess up your sleep schedule forever. So it's like things have to, you know, it has to be pretty desperate times to embrace it. But if we were to be really serious about our faith and how we, uh, how we carry it out, how we live it, um, you know, a lighthearted way of saying, hopefully, but it, it rings, it resonates, is are we... What level of napping are we doing on thinking about our faith and our walk? Are we just sort of in the cruise control? Have we, have we just sort of gone through the motions and aren't really paying attention? Revelation is like uh, banging a gong to wake you up and say, pay attention. Wake up and listen. You've fallen asleep on a few different things. You've fallen asleep on what it means to to trust in God. You've fallen asleep on these things that are warring for your soul. The things that you just sort of give your worship to, your attention and your trust, your devotions. So Revelation just sort of smacks us upside the head. It's kind of like the wind uh, Friday. The wind Friday was... it shook you, you know, it got you cold down to your bones. And that's sort of what Revelation does, is, is like making sure that you're alive, that your faith heartbeat is going again, that it's beating for Christ and His kingdom. And so, Revelation 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, 
I know, it's like, woohoo, let's get into it. But I promise you that if we walk through this, if you let the images do their work, it has a way of waking us up. It helps us see the world as it's working and functioning. It also helps us to see what God is doing behind the scenes to redeem and save and help us. And so if we want to get a picture for the world that we're looking, uh, living in and a sense of what is to come, uh, Revelation 6 and 7 gives us a good picture of what's going on. And so let's, let's dig in. Revelation 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5 that we studied last week, we asked the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? And what we discovered is no one is worthy to open the scroll because every single one of us have been complicit in sinfulness. Every one of us has had a hand in destructing, uh, destroying God's good creation. And so when John's looking at who's the one that can sort of unfold God's plan and bring about God's goodness in this world, uh, the revelation is this, that everyone has had a, a hand in its destruction. And so no one's hands are worthy to, un, un, uh, to open the scroll, to open the seals. But behold, there's one who is, and it's this lamb and the Lamb begins opening up the seals, and what each of these seals will reveal is the way that the world is, at least the first four. And so we'll continue on. I know you're thinking, if the first verse is going to take this long, we may never make it, but uh, let's keep going. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal... I heard the living creature thir- the I heard the third living creature say come I looked and there before me was a black horse its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying 2 pounds of wheat for a day's wages and 6 pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine Whenever I read that, I imagine like some character from Monty Python reading it. I was like, I don't know why I have such issues. But moving forward, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Well, this all seems pretty clear. If we just want to pray and go home, we can do that now. Uh, Or we can dig in a little bit. All right, let's let's dig in. Oliver was excited. Um, Some of you were as well. I won't call any more names out. All right, so we have four horsemen. The first... Uh, The first horse is a white horse, and its rider is bent on conquest. It's given a crown. 
when we pick up Revelation chapter 6 and we get the four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse, what we, uh, what we pick up with it is a bunch of stories about what we think this could possibly mean and who this possibly is. We start thinking all of these million other different directions, and I could highlight a few of them that are just confusing, or I'd just like to offer you a clarifying focus on what I think is going on. The clarifying focus is this. Don't read Revelation and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse as if it's something that's going to come and happen. Read it like it's something that's already present and revealing the present reality. So when we read it with a lens that's revealing the present reality, and you look at what the message is saying, then it gives us a little bit more clarity. Reading it like, okay, who's the first horse? What ruler, what person is that going to be? Or what nation is that going to be? I think it's all misguided. I think Revelation uh, chapter 6 and the first four seals are revealing the way the world is. And I know that you don't agree with me, so I'm going to argue my point. Some of you are smiling. Here we go. So the first one, we read it. It's the white horse. Immediately when we read white horse, do your, it feels like, oh, this must be talking about Jesus because white is good. Stop it. It's not Jesus. Yes, he's given a crown. Yes, he's, yeah, yes, he's white. But white can, uh, white can mean victory. White can mean purity. He's bent on conquest. He's given a crown. He's given all appearances that this would be the Christ figure, the one who's going to be victorious. But it's not. Just like the rulers in the ancient world would say, look at me, we're gods, These, uh, a ruler bent on conquest is one who's going to disguise himself and make the world think that he's a god. Yes, Revelation 6. The, uh, listening to the YouVersion app on the Bible is a great way to get God's word into your heart. Um, when I'm driving down the road, I'm listening to YouVersion, and uh, I just love to have God's word filling my uh, filling the cabin of my vehicle. But I'm um, sorry to pick on whoever that was. Um, we won't be seeing them again. All right. The, uh, um, all right. So Revelation chapter 6 and the seal, the first seal, is this white horse. And we want to say, who is this? And, and don't do that. But let's put the whole sort of kaleidoscope of the seals, the first four seals together. So we have the white horse rider is bent on conquest the next horse is the red one and what is the red one known for but war and violence and so it's the red one red represents death or not death but uh, war and violence and destruction and so it's this fiery blood red horse is coming and so the image is that there's war and death happening the next one is the black horse and then there's the crazy guy saying uh uh you hear the voice you know then i heard a sound of uh, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages you know two pounds of wheat for you know whatever some crazy voice thing i don't know the description if you just pass over it you wouldn't realize what's going on but they are saying that there is economic injustice going on a day's wage should have gotten far more than what they're describing. 
what they're describing is the economic aftermath of death, war, and violence. We have been pretty isolated from any notions of, of uh, in recent history, of what comes in the aftermath of death and war. But if you look at uh, around the world, and I, I wanted to get a sense of this, the most greatest amount of economic inequality is in the Middle East. Is there any correlation to the amount of war going on with the amount of economic inequality that's happening in that part of the world? And so uh, we have uh, the white, we have the red, we have the black, and then we have the pale horse. And the pale horse is death and Hades right along with it. And so John is using incredible imagery to paint a picture about the way the world is. Don't read it as like some predictor book and we say, okay, who's going to be the white horse? Who's going to bring... It's not that. Read it as a kaleidoscope, an image that's projecting the way the world is. And I know it's real cheery, but hear me. The world is bent on conquest. There is war and there is violence. There is economic injustice and there is death. But there's hope. The question, though, is before John starts getting into the hope part of things, he also says something, a whole seal is dedicated to Okay. Yeah. So yesterday I was trying to uh, do a, like a little sermon illustration, and my father-in-law needed to do something, and it totally bombed. And uh, so it's just I'm just keeping it up, you know. We get thinking about trying to be, you know, professional and not make mistakes. Good reminder. Okay. Um, we're talking about the fifth seal. All right, so the, the first four seals give us a picture of the way the world works. And the fifth seal gives us a sense... Well, let's look at it. Uh, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and their sisters, were killed just as they had been. 
I know it doesn't sound too hope-filled. It's certainly, it's actually, it's not all that hopeful. But what John is doing is he's painting a picture. He's saying, okay, we look at the way the world works and there's economic injustice and there's rulers bent on conquest and there's death and destruction and all of these terrible things. And then he reveals and he pulls back the curtain and he says, revealed behind this seal is a group of people who have maintained their testimony about the world. If you can throw yourselves back into the ancient world and you start getting a sense of the chaos and turmoil that's going on, you're going to need a little bit of hope. You're going to need to know that the things that you've given up to follow Jesus and the threats on your life to trust in Him and walk with Him, that you did those things for a reason. In the midst of war and violence and economic injustice and all of, the, all of these things, you'd be so willing to start compromising your faith and taking things easy. And so what John does by, when he reveals what's behind the fifth seal, when the Lamb opens it and we see, what he's saying is, is that these folks were faithful to the very end. And they suffered incredibly horrible, horrific consequences because they didn't give up on Christ. The fifth seal is about telling us about the saints, those who hung in there and never gave up on Jesus Christ as their Lord and their King. And we see that that have incredible consequences. It says that they... Uh, but they also called out to God. It becomes this sort of, they hang on to the word of God and the testimony that they maintained, and they cry out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until all of this is over, until you start avenging us, until you make it right. And so then the sixth seal is opened. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth. As figs, figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. We start scratching our heads and we wonder what's going on here. And we actually get a little bit of clarity. Then the, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in, clay, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called out, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, from the great day of their wrath has come. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any winds from blowing on the land and the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm the land and, to the, and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God, 
Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. We'll pause just for a moment. Jump back to 6.12. When he opens the sixth seal and it says, There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth. Think about the goat hair. The moon turns blood red. These are not pictures of things that we should anticipate. Like, and then write books about and say, when the blood moons come, that the world's going to end. These are images that declare that the kingdoms of this world will topple and empires will fall. This is, this is picturesque language that is describing the falling of great and mighty emperors. And the reason why I think that is just because what happens to the kings of the earth they go into hiding and they know that they will be held accountable for the conquest and the war and violence and the economic injustice and all of the death that they've brought. That is all coming to an end. And in the sixth seal, you see that there are faithful people who are protected and loved. The picture is not to create fear-mongering and in Revelation 6, it is a call to faith monitoring. Not fear-mongering, not making us shake in our boots of what is to come, but to know that if we remain faithful and trust in God, He's with us. In 7, verse 4, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. For the tribe of Judah... 12,000 were sealed from the tribe of Reuben, 12, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, from the tribe of Levi, whatever, Levi, 12,000, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Did you guys want me to repeat that one? You guys are no fun anymore. The 144,000. Again, it's a picture. And the numbers convey a meaning. The number 12 is influential in the story of God's people. There were 12 tribes of Israel. The story of 12 disciples is for a reason. The number 12 represents God's people. The bigger the number, the more it means the more significance it carries. So when you start making it multiples of thousands, then it's carrying the full weight. And what I think is saying is, is that all 144,000, or as the picture is, all of God's children are sealed. It says then in the very next thing, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one can t- could count from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. If you're tracking with me, and I hope you are, is that the first four seals reveal the way the world is. The fifth seal gives us the hope that if we hang on, God is taking care of us. And the sixth seal is God saying, I am going to take down all of these things that bring death and destruction and dismay. 
and I will rescue and redeem and keep all of my children. The promise of the sixth seal is that every single one of God's children is going to be present and accounted for. That's one of those amen moments. I don't know. I, I know that's... Yes. That you are accounted for and won't be forgotten. That as bad as the world gets, as hard as it gets, as frequently as we get frustrated and wonder how long, God, until all of these things get made right again, and we look at a world filled with economic injustice, we look at the poverty and all the things going on, even in our own neck of the woods, and we wonder how long, God, until we get through all of this, God is saying, I am bringing this world to an end, and I'm making it new, and I am calling you my own. I am taking you to be my children. You will not be lost. You will not be forgotten. You are my kids. There will be no forgetting who you are. He will write a seal on us. We don't know what it will say. Probably, he belongs to me. She belongs to me. Something that says that we belong to Christ, that we've been loved by him. And so after this, there's the great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, from every people, from every language, standing before the throne of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cry out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels, they're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fall down to their faces before the throne and they worship God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then the elders asked me, these, uh, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, they, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb is at the center of the throne, and He will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For all of the horrible things that happened in the first four seals, for all of the difficulties that we face in everyday moments of our lives, from the big picture to the, on the global scale right down to the hard things going on right in the midst of our own homes, the economic injustice in our own lives trying to figure out how we're going to pay for bread, how we're going to get the health care, how we're going to get the things that we need for our kids, For all of the times that we ever ask the question, how long is it going to be like this? There is a far greater promise 
of one who says, trust in me and walk with me. And there's a day coming where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will vanquish any notion that we ever had that doubted and had suspicion and thought, gee, where where have you been? God will go and He will lead us. And the picture is this, that every single one of us will be accounted for. Every one of us will be have a place in His kingdom. And so it ultimately comes down to a question of, are you a part of God's family? Do you want to live for Him and seek Christ and His kingdom? Do you want to never give up and hold on to Him? The, uh, the picture that we get in Revelation 6 and 7 spends a lot of time talking to us about a lot of hard things. But I think if we pay attention to it, we'll learn to live faithfully and not fearfully. That we'll be encouraged to keep our testimony and not give up when it's hard and say and start doubting in the identity of Christ. I think we'll grow in our worship of Jesus. You know, there's, I don't know who to attribute it to. There are a couple of preachers talking, and the preacher said, you know, I've, I decided I'm going to memorize the book of Revelation. The other preacher was like, you know, most people just stick with John 3.16. Why, uh, why would you start memorizing the book of Revelation? And he said, well, with all the worships going on, I want to make sure I don't have to pay too much attention to the sheet music. The book is about worship. The book is about declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He's the Lamb of God who's given His life for all of us. It's about all glory and all praise and adoration being given to Him. I can't say that I could recommend uh, memorizing Revelation. But I would challenge us as this. Do we look forward to worship? Do we look forward to this moment that we get together as a church family? Do we look forward to the opportunities that we have in every moment of every day to walk with God and praise and worship Him? I had a cool experience yesterday. I share it um, so that you know how awesome and righteous I am. Uh, I couldn't sleep. And I was at Rock Lake Christian Assembly, and there is a there was a Christian musician who actually got his start at Rock Lake Christian Assembly. Uh, he wrote this catchy tune called "Awesome God." Rich Mullins got a start there, and where we were doing the retreat was right on the grounds where he. I it's folklore. I'm sure he wrote "Awesome God" there. Um, he probably didn't, but um, but I thought, you know, of all places to listen and worship God, I'm going to do it right here. And the fact of the matter is, any place and any moment can be an opportunity to worship Him. And we can find ourselves in the most discouraging of times and wondering, why am I still doing this, and what am I getting out of it, and all these hundred million questions that we get. And the bottom line is this. 
this whole thing is about giving God glory and seeking Him and giving Him our hearts and our lives. And the whole book is about encouraging us not to stop doing that and to wake up. And wake up and see that there are so many of these little million compromises all along every single day that steals a little bit of worship and glory and praise that's deserving of God. All I'm asking is that you would wake up and pay attention so that you can worship God a little bit more. That's my prayer and my hope for all of us. That we would wake up and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Uh, Amidst all of the many distractions uh, within my message, God, we know that there's distractions of every day. Keep us from focusing on you, from pursuing you, listening to you. God, we listen to uh, so many different uh, voices and we bring in so much uh, distraction into our lives. And so we pray a prayer of repentance. We ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask that your spirit would maybe nudge us just a little bit louder each day, a little bit harder, that we would pay attention wake us up to where we would see what's going on in the world and know what you're doing about it. And in our heartache, when we share with the cries of God's people, how long? Help us in our tears to know that you will make your world right. That you will topple kingdoms. But your kingdom will stand forever. Let us find ourselves faithfully serving God. Help us to trust you and seek you with our whole hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.